Welcome to the Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. Shout out to my friends Keith and Michelle Norris from PaleoFX. PaleoFX this year is from April 29th through May 1st. Uplevel your wellness with life-changing talks, interactive physical experiences, and connections that bring you all the magic of PaleoFX. You can learn more at paleofx.com. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area, who has integrated various somatic practices into his work, including rolfing. He's my rolfer and he's an amazing man, so do check him out. Today's guest is Dana Martin. Dana Martin is an author, public speaker, and parenting coach who has written three books about peaceful parenting and unschooling, including this book, which we'll be talking about today, Radical Unschooling, and we'll also be discussing her other books as well. Hi, Dana. Hi, thanks for having me. That's good to have you. So one of the things that stands out for me is the seamless flow from your experiences and your, and your education and your work from natural childbirth to attachment parenting to radical unschooling, which is just amazing to me because I've never seen anyone connect those three schools of thought together, but you just do so seamlessly in all your work. And I'm wondering, like, first of all, how did natural childbirth come into your, to your mind? then eventually to attachment parenting, then we can get to the radical in schooling. Um, yeah, I'm happy to share about that. So I never imagined myself parenting like this. You know, I never knew that this was a path that I would take. It just happened very naturally and organically after I had children. So when I had my son, Devin, in the hospital, he's uh, 23 now, but when I had him in the hospital, I had a midwife and I had a wonderful natural birth. And I didn't know anybody else that had ever had one, actually. So for me to go through that process and experience it in the way that I did, when I really didn't think I could do it, um, I, everybody around me was always competing with horror stories of who suffered the most in labor. Now, when you ask women, what was your birth like? It's very rare that you'll hear anything positive. You hear who labored the longest, how many interventions did they need? Did they have surgery? And it, it was just a really negative like fear-based perspective for me. So my experience wasn't like that at all. It was really empowering and it changed me. It changed me as a woman. It changed me as a human being to go through that natural process. And I wanted to empower other people to do it. So I became a childbirth teacher shortly after my son, my first child's birth uh, and a doula. So I used to give birth in classes when I lived in New Hampshire. I did so for about 17 years and I would attend births as a doula and later a midwife. So um, the journey for me that it connects to parenting in that everybody told me their advice on parenting. Like when you tell somebody you're having a child, they love to give their unwarranted advice. And everybody told me the kind of advice that was very authoritarian in, in nature, meaning I was told not to hold my son too much, to make sure that I let him cry sometimes and to never, never let him sleep in my bed and not hold, you know, not meet his needs, basically, that I was the one in control. And I was the one that needed to set his feeding schedule, his, you know, let him cry it out in the crib, that he had to be taught to be independent. Now, that never felt right to me. And when I brought my son home from the hospital, I put him in a bassinet that my mother-in-law um, gave me because she, she was there. And she's like, you've, you've already fed him, put him down, make sure you don't hold him too much, because he will get used to that. And he will manipulate you. So she left and I ran over to the bassinet and picked him up and 
I was crying because I was like, this feels so wrong. And if this is parenting, I, I, I can't even imagine living that way. So from that point on, I held my kids when they wanted to be held. I uh, did practice safe co-sleeping because they wanted to be with me. And it was the most natural way to nurse my baby through the night. Um, and I, I just focused on their needs and trusted them. So that's the key is the trust that's really undermined from the moment of birth in our culture to all through the people's parenting careers. So I, I was doing something really different. I didn't know it had a label. I later found out it was called attachment parenting. And then I started holding um, attachment parenting groups, breastfeeding support groups and, and childbirth education classes. And so I was the one source in my area of New Hampshire that was offering something you know, what, that was considered radical. And however, over the course of three years, my classes were literally, there was a waiting list to get into them. And I had more births than I could attend. So I started training doulas. And so everything's really just expanded from me tapping into what, what changed me, wanting other women to feel that in a culture that robs women of the experience because of money, you know, hospitals are big money. They are focused on money and they're also focused on undermining a woman's confidence. So they need to rely on the medical system and then later rely on experts and not trust themselves from the beginning. So that detachment process begins with birth. So um, then as I practice attachment parenting, I just basically continued to respect my kids in that way. And they, cho they chose not to go to school. They always had the option. I didn't, I didn't want them to be in a situation where they were uncomfortable and, you know, when they were really little and they wanted to be near me. So, I mean, I could share a lot more about it, but I'm sure you might want to ask a specific question. Yeah, and I definitely want to hear more about how that unfolded for you. But let me ask you about the, the courage it took for you both to say no to the conventional wisdom around childbirth, but also the conventional wisdom, especially from your mother-in-law, which is like right yes. there, you're there to say no to this to the type of parenting that had been recommended to you by others like that you know how, how did you go against this the mainstream the way you did well i love that question because I, I want people to know that we were so conditioned to meet others needs and like please others the adults in our lives as children and that we had to focus on obedience and compliance and we needed to be looked at as as good kids if somebody told us we were a good kid and we did a good job and we which the equivalent of being a good kid back you know where I grew up is when you obeyed you listened you did what you were told and you didn't give the adults any any problems so um yeah the, the time that I really needed to focus on was realizing that 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 had happened to me I was raised to be a people pleaser so when my mother-in-law did reject my parenting practices, it was very painful because I just wanted to be seen at that time. It was really important for me, for her to see me as a good mother. So I would send her articles about co-sleeping, about wearing your baby, you know, all these, you know, breastfeeding, extended breastfeeding, but she did not take it well. She called me a born again parent as if I was preaching to her and that I thought what she did was wrong when all I really wanted at a you know, very deep biological primitive level was love and acceptance for my choices. So she never did accept it. She became really difficult, but it was something that I'm grateful for because I had no idea that I was going to go on promoting, you know, radical and schooling, which 
being on TV a bunch of times and different things, I really have been hit hard with intense adversity and debating the philosophy. And I feel like her kind of rejecting me was exactly what I had to go through to gain the confidence within myself that I would later use in a lot of other places. Well, in that case, we'll be thankful for your mother-in-law. <laughs> I try to be, but that's hard. <laughs> How do you work with the women, the you know, mothers-to-be to help them um, recognize their own innate intelligence and that it's okay to go against the conventional mainstream advice in terms of birthing and parenting? Well, I love to share with people kind of the history of how birth moved into the hospital and why things are done the way they are. Because when people understand the intention and let me, let me just say that I'm really grateful there are hospitals for women that truly need them for childbirth, but it's really only 1% that actually need, you know, surgery or need to, to have interventions. So I'm not totally downing them altogether. Um, they save lives, mm-hmm. but the majority of women never need to go that route. So I talk about cons- uh, being good consumers, that when somebody is choosing to have a hospital birth, you need to be a c- good consumer. And the doctors, nurses, and midwives all work for them. And if they don't know their options, they don't have any, because you will walk in that door and you will be put on you know, the, the way that they do things, like a factory. Like first you get the external fetal monitor, then you get your epidural, then you get Pitocin. Like there's this whole you know, stream of things that happens that if people are educated about their choices and the risks, they can have a much more positive experience like I did. So I just share honestly about the difficulty of walking a path like this, but because you have to really deal with all your past issues, like so much is triggered from your own childhood with rejection and criticism and judgment. And uh, so helping people realize that that is part of it, you, you will hear all of that. But I tried to form community, both online and in person. So women didn't feel so alone. Parents didn't feel so alone. And remind them with sharing, you know, positive information and, and all of their options. Uh, yeah, it's really, it really made a difference to a lot of people back when I lived in New Hampshire uh, to, to introduce them to their, their own power. Nice. I love that. That's awesome. Um, and the, you said your son is 23? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Have you seen much change in the last 23 years compared to like when you started your own process in terms of natural birth and uh, your own way of doing uh, attachment parenting to today? Uh, you know, is that increasing in numbers and interest? And let me ask you well, that first. Well, uh, since COVID and all that happened, like a huge interest in this life, um, more than I ever knew would happen, more, you know, kind of beyond my wildest dreams with how many people are really wanting to learn alternatives. So, you know, it was a slow, maybe, maybe upward climb. And then COVID just skyrocketed people wanting different choices because hospital birth is now even more controlled. So people want to have more home births because they understand that what's happening there is really toxic. So, um, and the same with parenting. When parents were forced to be with their kids because of lockdowns, a lot of parents connected with me and said that being with their kids all day was much more positive than they thought it would be and that they did want to be together. You know, I think parents probably dreaded with kids in school, having their kids home 24 seven, but the people that contacted me, it was the opposite. I was so like pleasantly surprised that so many people 
we're like, this is that we love being together. And once this is over, I think I want to keep my child home because I'm seeing that they're learning and growing and they're so much happier. I have my, I have my child back that was present before they went into school. So it's been amazing. I'm so grateful for everything that's happened for that reason. I want to follow up on that, but let me ask you for an earlier, earlier, something you said. Um, so COVID has changed how, how parents want to do some of these things, especially because the authoritarian systems in the hospitals have got more constrained and controlling. But I'm curious, like, have you noticed anything in the institution of, of birthing changing? Like, are there doctors and nurses a little bit more open to vaginal births and breastfeeding and things that you think that I would think are kind of normal and natural and, and been with us for as long as humans have been around? Or is it still a pretty industrialized approach? Well, I mean, I think now it's kind of reverted back to what it was probably 20 years ago. So we did make a lot of headway, but then with COVID, hospital birth became right back to the to the start um, of major control and fear-based information to convince women to take all of these interventions. So, um, but there are, you know, there are exceptions, I'm sure. I haven't been to every hospital, but I think people are waking up and, and really wanting more. So I think that they're kind of demanding more freedom within that, that experience. And also people are learning about doulas who, who are hired to be, uh, not to do anything medical, but to be with women, to remind them that they are capable of doing it and that they don't need to be rescued. So I've attended hundreds of hospital births that were natural and wonderful, but it was because I was there to you know, share the wishes of the parents, to give them informed consent when choices came to be. So it, it totally can be done. You just need to know what you need to facilitate to make it happen. Nice. Let me ask you, before we jump into the radical unschooling, what resources would you recommend to parents-to-be and presently pregnant parents so they can better understand what their options are in terms of doulas and home births and even natural births and hospitals and things along those lines? Well, I would recommend a movie that came out about 10 years ago. Uh, Ricky Lake created a movie called Mm -hmm. The Business of Being Born. And that movie was really groundbreaking for for the time and i and they've come out with other movies since other documentaries so i'd recommend that as a resource and also there's so many great birthing books out there so uh one of the best ones i think is ina may ina may is the most famous midwife that everybody you know she's like a a pioneer who has a place called the farm and she started home births there and there's a whole documentary actually about her husband i think on netflix that i watched but so uh, any birth birthing book that you're drawn to when you see it i wrote a birthing book called freeborn um, and i'm happy to send anybody a copy digital copy if they like it after they hear me here oh nice that's that's fantastic much much appreciated very cool. Good to have the resources. And also I'll throw out a plug for the Association for Pre and Perinatal Psychology and Health. They have a lot of good resources, including audios and videos, if you're interested in, in the whole kind of more natural approach, approach preconception, conception, pregnancy, and birth. Nice. Um, but to your radical unschooling. Um, so yours is really unique because you know I've, I've been around and studied and worked with unschoolers but you're, you've taken it beyond just like education, like what the kids learn. And you've made it like the 24-7 approach to, to being with your kids. And let me also state in the same book, you know, you 
you highlight the importance of how you organize your life around your family as opposed to other institutions. And I love that because most people organize their life around other institutions, physical school they have to go to for seven to eight, nine hours a day or work they have to go to and families. And I don't mean this in a value judging kind of way, but secondary. And I love the fact that you put your family first and that you organize everything around that. Can you walk me through how you went from maybe unschooling to radical unschooling and what that Um, means for you? Sure. Well, radical unschooling is a continuum, a continuation of attachment parenting philosophy. So 99% of parenting books on the market are focused on obedience and compliance and behavior modification. So TV shows, reality shows, like the nanny 911 shows, even those are all completely focused on control and behavior. They might not be promoting spanking, but they are promoting emotional abuse and control the kids by forcing them, you know, as young as a year and a half into naughty chairs and different things like that. So uh, what, what I'm doing is promoting something very different than that authoritarian paradigm. And it focuses on the parents' needs solely in the authoritarian paradigm. The parents' needs for quiet, uninterrupted sleep, and everything else that goes along with uh, people that want to parent for convenience. And what I'm doing is called a partnership-based paradigm. And in that paradigm, we're focused on the needs of everybody in the family equally, not just the parents. So behavior modification is not something I've ever focused on. It is focusing on the needs under the behavior. Why is a child acting like this? What do they need? What do they want? How can you help them in partnership get what they want? How can you facilitate things? And the assumption that children are born bad and need to be trained to be good is a very deeply rooted cultural idea. You might not even realize you have it if you're listening to this interview, but deep down we were really in, you know, really controlled and, and our parents were told to do that because if you don't force kids to be good by controlling them, they never will be. So the assumption of negative intent from children as young as you know, three months old is pushed. And when I assume positive intent from kids, my own children and encourage other people's, you know, other pe- people to do the same, it changes the relationship a lot. And this is not for the lazy parent. It's very hands-on in really positive ways, but it just became a natural extension of what I was doing. So my kids learn to read and write in the same way they learn to walk and talk. And what I mean by that is they never needed classes for these things. They needed to be supported Uh, given resources and encouraging them to use these tools to help them get more of what they want in life. So yeah, it's a, when I talk to people about it, I think most people that hear me that want to be listening to what I'm saying, they feel deep down that this feels like truth. And basically when I, Oh, go ahead, Michael. No, I was just going to say, you know, um, what you're pointing out is intrinsic curiosity of children to learn as opposed to the need for extrinsic force to force them to do certain things. That's what I'm hearing, like the difference between the old authoritarian model of parenting and yours. Yeah, and that is the big difference. And also when it comes to education, most people are forced to, to learn and not even to learn, but to memorize and jump through hoops. Now forced learning, whether it's a curriculum in school or a curriculum at home, has the same damaging effect. One for the the relationship for parent and child is deeply affected if the child needs to be forced 
and punished if they don't obey and do this particular curriculum. Um, and the same is true with schools. So forced learning is not the same as learning. And people really need to understand the difference because so many people contact me and they say, my child hates to learn. And I, when I dig deeper every single time, I point out that the child hates to be forced to learn. And there is a big, big difference because we've lost sight of that. That force and coercion and manipulation and punishments and rewards are, are never necessary, ever. Uh, unless you're trying to force another human being to do what you want. So when you let go of that whole paradigm altogether, and instead you see that children are amazing learners and learning is like breathing and it never has to be forced because learning feels good. When you're pursuing something you love or you want to explore more, learning happens really effortlessly for all of us when we're in that space. I'd like you to explore a little bit more about like your, your kids and walk, walk us through like, oh, how did they learn? What did they learn? How did you facilitate their learning? Um, I think that'd be really interesting for our viewing and listening audience. But before I before you kind of go down that path, I'd be curious on some of the other feedback you might be getting around like, oh, yeah, but how does a three-year-old know what they need or want or a four-year-old need what they need or want? I'm an adult. I know what they need. They do not know what they need. Like, how do you, I want to say argue against that position, but like, what is your take on someone who might say that to you? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on the particular situation, but you need to be present with young kids and you need to facilitate whatever their needs are. Um, if it's something really dangerous, you, you find something similar that's safer. Things that might be dangerous, like climbing a tree or you know, doing something that, uh, like jumping on the couch. You know, think to yourself, what does my child need right now? What are their needs? That would happen. That those things have happened to me and other parents where you're really stuck. Like, what should I do? So I remember when my toddler started jumping on the couch. There was a new couch at the time and I, their need was to jump. It's not, it had nothing to do with the behavior necessarily that they were being bad jumping on the couch. I just noticed they, they obviously want to jump. So I got an indoor trampoline with a little handle. Um, when they wanted to climb on the top of the fence that we built, I realized that they really like to climb and like, why don't we get to do some rock climbing lessons? Or, you know, we have all kinds of things around, you know, here to climb. So when they were really little, I would facilitate everything safely by being present with them and holding their hand or being close by. So nothing bad would happen. I can give you a really quick example um, of, of how I implemented this. So my son, Devin, when he was four years old, he was mesmerized by fire. Anytime we went anywhere that had a fire, he was absolutely you know, mesmerized. Like a lot of boys are, it's a real primitive thing that people are, boys are drawn to usually and some girls too. So my mother told me you should never let him near fire. And one day he, he said, can I build a fire? And I said, okay, we can do this. And so we went downstairs in the cellar and we have a really big wood furnace. And I taught him how to light matches. And he, I was right by his side the whole time. And he spent, you know, an hour or two a day with me down the cellar with him, with him lighting matches and then lighting paper on fire and me communicating, like, you gotta be careful. We can't do it here. We you know, make sure you do it uh, here, here, not there. And, um, his passion for fire, you know, me facilitating it. When he was older, he would build fires in the snow. He loved to do that to see, uh, you know, survival techniques he was learning. He later went on a couple of years later, when I think he was 13, to explore blacksmithing. 
he loved, loved, loved wow. everything to do with blacksmithing. And he became an incredible blacksmith and he still is today. So the way that I facilitated that was I found a local blacksmith, an old, uh, a wonderful, you know, old retired blacksmith. This gentleman came over and was so thrilled that Devin wanted to learn this craft that he spent a lot of time with him. He got, gave him his first anvil. We took our storage shed out back and took everything out of it and we turned it into a forge for him. He also used, you know, took some fire twirling lessons uh, from a friend in Australia when we were visiting and he became an amazing fire twirler and he mentored other people and taught other people how to do it. So when you facilitate something, like say that I was in the authoritarian paradigm and he wanted to light a match and I was like, no, 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 that's dangerous. You know, go to your room or go do something else. I wonder if he would have ever gone on to explore it so deeply in all the other ways that he has. So he has a Etsy store where he makes knives and swords. Um, he's given classes. He, he really, really, really is his passion. So when you're able to say yes to things that kind of scare you and you do so with the, you know, the understanding that you need to be there in order for your child to stay safe, you need to be with them when they're exploring dangerous things. You need to be present with your child and most people aren't willing to do that. And some people can't, you know, because of their lifestyle or maybe their work schedule. And I, and I realized by saying yes and, and helping him, it really became a, a consistent uh, track of his life, everything he's learned with fire. So I love that. That is so awesome. You know, the two words come to my mind, and you've already used the word presence. Because so I would have to imagine doing it the way you've described it, you have to be really present especially when the kids are pre-verbal because you have to, you have to know what they mean by their signs that they communicate with because they can't use language, you know, their verbal, uh, their, their, their bodily signs and moans and groans and cries or whatever that they are. Yeah. actually you have to pay close attention. And the other word that comes to mind is being playful. Like you're looking underneath like, Oh, he wants to play with or be on the couch, jump up and down. Well, it's not, like instead of focusing on the couch let's focusing on jumping up and down and playing mm -hmm. like so you're looking for another way to do the same activity that's safer for the child depending i would imagine what st uh, stage and age they're at so i love the presence and the playful approach to raising children thank you and most people aren't weren't parented this way so it is hard to, to know what to do because yeah. back when i was a baby you know a young child a toddler <laughs> I was told to stop jumping on the couch. And if I didn't listen the first time, I would have had my butt slapped and I would have been too afraid to go on it again. Would that have met the need that was within me at that time? Never. It would have been totally ignored because the adults in my life didn't understand what was happening because they're so focused on just behavior. They're so focused on controlling behavior, manipulating behavior, punishing for behavior, rewarding, that they never go deeper to this is a human being who is showing you a need how do you know? Because they're doing it. <laughs> they're jumping. It's something they want to do. And it's your role to facilitate a safer space. Now, some people have old couches. They don't mind if their kids jump on them yeah. and, and that's fine. But the needs of the parent matter just as much as the child, right? So it was a new couch. I didn't want it destroyed. I didn't yell at anybody. I just found another way they could have that yeah. need met because my need for my couch to stay intact was just as important as their need to jump. And when the need is all about just obedience, no one ever sees the other need that's necessary to focus on. I love that. Wow, that's so great. Um, can you give another example or two of like some of your other kids and things that they naturally were curious about exploring and did a deeper dive into? 
Sure. Um, my daughter Ivy, who's 17, she always loved animals and she wanted a lot of pets when she was younger. And so facilitating that and finding ways um, to, to make that happen took a lot of work and time and that, that kind of thing that I had to really understand that if, if I do get these pets for her, it's my responsibility at the age that she's at when she's little to clean them and take care of them. And I think there's an issue for a lot of parents because a little kid will say like, I promise I'll take care of it. I promise I'll take it for a walk, but they don't, they don't understand the amount of work that goes into these things. So when I said yes about these things, I understood it was my responsibility uh, along, you know, along with teaching them how to go about it. So I always supported Ivy's interest in animals. And when we moved to Miami, she decided when she was 15 that she wanted to be a vet. So all the process of her stepping into that space and also facilitating her love for animals was important. So she has a guinea pig rescue. I know that sounds like a funny oh. thing to, to rescue, but but um, shelters and different places call her here for, for rescues. And so I basically gave her my whole garage, except for one little area I have for storage to facilitate this passionate interest for the guinea pigs. She also has a ball python, a hedgehog, a bearded dragon. Like she, she's some, someone who's very, very fascinated with it. So um, facilitating that by saying yes when I can, you know, and encouraging her to take care of everything was another way. Um, finding volunteer options for your kids and mentorships with whatever they're interested in is really important. One, one thing that I want to point out. So my daughter, Tiffany, who's 20. Now this life, uh, you know, really requires you, you face a lot of preconceived ideas about things that you may have had before kids. So she was always like fascinated in like pop culture out of all my kids. So my son, Devin, the oldest, if I only had him, I would feel like the best parent on earth <laughs> because everything he did was so interesting and fascinating, you know, building survival shelters, giving classes, becoming a blacksmith, you know, making homemade bread. He, he made his own looms and he had wool and he'd weave Viking reenactment clothing. And then when I had Tiffany, everything was totally different because she was really loved pop culture. I can remember the first time she said she, she loved Justin Bieber. I was like, oh my God, what is happening? And so I had to let go of my judgments about things that I thought were one, potentially really bad for her. Like when she wanted to get a Barbie for the first time. Well, me coming from a naturally minded background and a really empowered woman and going through my past healing, I really had fear about that, thinking that she would, you know, see, see these Barbies and want to be like that, or she would want to have an unrealistic, you know, maybe she, she'd think an unrealistic idea about what her body should look, you know, all those ideas I had, I had to really deeply explore and connect with her about them and talk to her about these things. Instead of saying no, I facilitated it and talked about the things that I had, you know, things that scared me that I was worried about. And once I, I saw how she was developing and saw what she loved about it, well, she went on to, she wanted to be a clothes designer. And for me, I'm just seeing Barbie equals bad versus why she wanted the Barbies. She wanted to mm -hmm. make clothes for them and she did. And she went on to be a model and she walked the catwalk with different designers. She's a brand manager now of um, all kinds of clothing companies. So her career and her path was so deeply rooted in fashion and modeling and all of those things. I had to grow and see them through her eyes to see that this was who she was and I needed to support it. So that's just more perspective on, on that. 
Yeah, no, those are two great examples. And, you know, comments I've heard from people like, oh, yeah, but how do your kids learn to read and write and learn? Math and geometry, the two examples you just gave, like your kids are doing great without formal Mm -hmm. education. But how might you counteract the arguments like, yeah, but what about those things they must learn? in order to be productive and get a job? Well, the interesting thing is uh, the, the goal of unschooling is not necessarily an education first. It's a solid family foundation and connection with your, your children pursuing their passions and living life under their terms with your support and facilitation. Now, an education does happen as a side effect of that, but it doesn't come before that important foundation. Now, um, my kids all learn to read and write and, uh, you know, at different times, depending upon each child. And I don't believe in testing kids or grading them or comparing them or measuring them. So it's not something that I ever did. But when my son, uh, Devin, turned 17, he said, I really want to get a high school diploma to see, you know, I want to take it. Is there any kind of test I could take to see? Um, you know, where I stand with all of that. So he and his girlfriend, they were 16 and 17 at the time. I contacted a a charter school and asked if they'd be willing to go over and my son wanted to take the test. And they said, yep, sure, no problem. And they went over and my son had never done a test in his life at age 17, never any kind of uh, workbooks, no schoolwork whatsoever. But he took the test and he scored above average on everything all the information except for English, that category scored average, which I'm only sharing for sake of understanding that throughout his life in freedom and the way that things are facilitated, he learned almost, you know, I'm I'm sure even more than kids in school learn because it was perfectly catered to who he was. So how does this happen? It happens from when your child has an interest in something, you, you facilitate that interest. And unschoolers don't break life down into subjects. Like I never say you're doing math, you're doing reading, you're doing science, because quite honestly, that's a conditioned uh, mindset. And it's not real life when you, when you live like that. We're not doing that right now. We're not labeling this. This is social studies. We're just living. <laughs> and however, you know, the way I would facilitate their interest, it would touch on all those like subjects if you were to like see and break it down. Um, when my daughter Ivy was really interested in Legos, for example, she loved them. I subscribed to Lego magazine for her. We made cakes in the kitchen. Uh, they have these cool Lego cake molds. That's math. You know, the magazine subscription was her internal motivation for reading. Um, we went and saw this wonderful exhibit in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, which was the old mills. Someone had done an entire huge uh, Lego exhibit based on that. That was history. So the, the way kids get all this information, it's, it's very fun and rewarding. And people tend to not believe it when you share that kids will learn. They will trust you, trust me. You know, they will learn these things. Yes. Have you seen colleges shift how they understand and work with unschooled kids? Because I couldn't imagine like 30, 40, 50 years ago, they're like, wait, you have no education. That's my first question for you. Mm-hmm. And then do you see institutions adjusting to the fact that more and more kids are being unschooled too? Because I can just imagine the workspace, like most 
kids who are unschooled aren't going to fit into authoritarian, maybe they might, but a generally authoritarian system because they're free thinkers and, and pretty in, interdependent, independent people. So I'm wondering if like, do you see institutions shifting and what about colleges and universities specifically? Yeah, great question. So, so unschooling isn't uneducating. It is not doing school, not doing the institutionalized aspect of school, which includes forced learning and a set curriculum. You know, we're not all meant to learn the same things in life. The idea that a curriculum needs to be given the same, the same curriculum to every child is ridiculous. Every child has a different purpose and passion. So unschoolers are very sought after in college from colleges right now. And my daughter-in-law's in college. She went to college. She was accepted after she took that test, that high school diploma test, she scored above, above average in everything. And she was unschooled from third grade when her mother found me and my work. And I went to organized a conference and my son Devin met her and it was, it was love. But um, yeah, so they were, they took her right away, you know, knowing um, that she was a self-motivated learner. And sharing her life experience and what her passions were and what she did. Colleges love those kind of transcripts because everybody else's looks the same, almost cookie cutter yeah. same. So unschoolers are, there's unschoolers in every major college right now. There's unschoolers at Harvard. I mean, it's and not even, I don't even necessarily value college to, to the level that some other people might as being necessary. Unless you obviously, like my daughter Ivy needs is in college to be a veterinarian because that's her career path. But um yeah, it's, it's much easier than most people think to, to get into colleges if you've been unschooled. Do, do you see or do you hear that any of the colleges are shifting around how they do things? Because I was fortunate. I went to two alternative schools in the, in the graduate, postgraduate space. With, so they're like open to individualization and stuff. But I can't imagine, Har I mean, I'm incorrect, but Harvard and some of the top tier colleges or even some of the other colleges, you know, how, how do they adapt to unschoolers style of learning? Or do they okay. just expect them to fit into the system as it is? Well, it's amazing how if somebody wants to be going to college, they adapt very easily because it's in their own internal motivation. You, there's, there's rules and, and ways that people do things, whether it's a job or college or, or anything, you know, going to a class, a yoga class, everything is kind of guided by, by a consensual choice to be there. So in that case, you just learn the, the rules, what has to happen. Um, what's expected of you and you choose to be there and follow the way they do things. So all of my kids, my daughter Ivy totally adapted to starting to do schoolwork when she was 15, I graduated her. And she um, was really interesting because she said, I really want to be a vet. And I said, let's find out what you need to do, you know, to, to go through that. So she um, en enrolled and was doing some classes to, you know, get caught up to college level. Now she doesn't, there was no catching up because she had never done schoolwork before, but she learned an entire school career, 12 years of, of education. She learned in six weeks because her brain was ready to learn it. That's the whole yeah, thing. The yeah, same thing. Yeah. This happens all the time. If you start a six or seven year old learning things that they have no interest in, it takes 12 years to, to in a forced learning environment to get information into kids. And then most of which we all forget because you're only, you're forced to take a test and memorize. And that's not true learning. Learning has to be consensual and something you desire. When it's forced on you, it's not learning. It's obedience training. And so- yeah. And, and Ivy's not the first child I heard of doing that. In fact, I, I had a feeling that would happen. 
math was a little bit harder for her and it took her about two, two and a half weeks to go from, to learn, you know, to, to know first grade math, which she already knew because she used, used math like all humans do throughout life. It was like two and a half weeks for her to get the math portion. And that was it all the way from first to 12th grade in a total of about, you know, five or six weeks. It seems to me listening to you talk that one way I might frame it is that our present day system extends adolescence really into early adulthood, you know, and I'm curious, like, what is your experience with your own kids and other kids who are unschooled, especially radically unschooled in terms of their emotional intelligence and their ability to relate to people around them at different ages and stages, not just with their own peers? Well, the interesting thing is our culture, and this kind of goes back to the attachment parenting mindset, our culture thinks that uh, you need to teach kids how to be independent. And what happens is people don't realize that children are designed when they're young to be dependent. And when you meet their dependent needs with love, whether it's co-sleeping or, or them wanting a pacifier longer or you know, being afraid of the dark and letting them feel safe and be with you or... You know, the, the list of things goes on and on that they, they become more independent earlier when you meet the dependent needs. In fact, independence is so stunted when you're forcing these things with the authoritarian paradigm, you know, letting a kid cry it out in a crib because the doctor told them to It breaks the parent's heart and it hurts the baby. It literally does. But yet the goal has to be independence. You know, this is a child. It's a, it's a little baby he needs you. Yeah. So yeah. forced independence in the authoritarian paradigm damages people so much, you know, both parents and children. I, I would imagine that you're not going to find too many unschooled, radically unschooled kids, at least within the framework you use, who have anxiety attachment styles or, or some of the other less secure attachment styles because their needs, like you just said, have, have been met early on. And they're more capable as young people and even into adulthood. They're, they're independent and interdependent and um, not kind of the adolescence that we've seen going into 30s and 40s, unfortunately, for some of our fellow human beings here in the States, for sure. Yeah, well, part of the reason I'll just share that that, that happens is that parents are told to control their kids like all day, every day and punish them when they don't obey. And that has like disastrous effects on the relationship between parent and child. And they have a very, very hard time um, with understanding that everybody's, you know, the, that their needs matter because the adults force the children to meet the adults needs, but never the child's. So in the partnership-based paradigm, when, where you're focused on everybody's needs mattering equally, the parent and the child, and the parent is modeling that, that's how that's the worldview that that human being grows up to know. Everybody's needs matter equally. But if you're raised in the authoritarian paradigm and the bigger one wields power over the smaller one or less you know, weaker one, that's modeling something to a child too. Now, how many people grow up entitled or narcissistic and all these other issues that come to be and they can't even function. The relationships are a mess because they had modeled for them that just the parents' needs matter. So just your needs matter when you're big. Everybody else, you force everyone else to meet those needs. So for, for what I've seen with unschoolers and for my own kids, they understand that everybody's needs matter kind of right from the beginning. So when you're in that mindset, it's a very respectful, connected way to be. And so there, there's no need for 
you know, the, the things that develop in a lot of kids who are in school and parent it punitively, like anxiety disorders and things like that. It's not unheard of. I mean, all humans have issues, but it's much, much less with unschooled kids. Uh, I love your operating philosophy, radical unschooling. Um, where can people learn more about your various offerings? You can go to my website. It's danamartin.com, D-A-Y-N-A-M-A-R-T-I-N. And you can see what I have there for information and you can contact me um, for any, any support you need. I offer parenting coaching. I um, have a program now where I train other people to be advocates for radical unschooling or peaceful parenting, which is something that I started when COVID happened and so many people are contacting me. So I also have a YouTube channel called The Sparkling Martins. And yeah, I'm pretty easy to find them on Facebook, Instagram. Cool. Well, make sure to include all those things in the show notes. Uh, Dana, it's been great. Um, I love your work. Well done. And thank you for joining us today. And let me encourage everyone to definitely check out your book, Radical Unschooling. And I'll also include in the links your other books as well. Okay, awesome. It was so nice to talk with you, Michael. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too.